Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity just to, to sit in a passage that we all know. Um, believing and unbelieving people alike know this scene, and uh, we pray, Lord, that you would be able to speak above all of our preconceived notions of what's happening here, and you, by your Spirit, would be able to uh, yeah, just continue that work of transforming us, of making us new, of drawing us nearer to you through it. And we invite you to come and do that now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So yesterday was Epiphany. Uh, some of you guys may not have grown up celebrating that. I certainly did not. I was aware of what it was. I did not mark it in any sort of way with my family. Um, and I, I think it's, it's one of those things that, yeah, most people aren't particularly aware of. And wouldn't really know how to begin to celebrate such a thing. It exists, and it's a very familiar scene, right? The nativity scenes that we have in our homes most of the time include these mysterious figures, the magi. But, like, have you ever considered how tense and uncomfortable the nativity scene actually was? For us, it's warm and idyllic and nostalgic, Right? But it was, it was pretty uncomfortable if you consider the details of it, right? And obviously, you might think, well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, in a, they're in a stable. They're in a barn. No, they're not. That's the interesting thing. We tend to, to imagine it that way, but neither Luke or Matthew say anything about a stable or a barn kind of setting. Uh, Luke says that Jesus was laid in a manger, and Matthew says that when the Magi came, they came to a house. That's where they found Jesus was in a house, and so it's interesting this way. We hear manger, a trough, effectively, and we assume this must have been a stable that Jesus was in. But Matthew says, no, it was, it was a house. And that kind of makes sense. If you know culturally about the way they would have lived, the ancients, especially in a very rural setting like Bethlehem, would have lived this way, where they're bringing in their livestock into kind of the bottom level of their house sometimes overnight. They sleep upstairs. We, we experienced this in Nepal years ago. I can remember. It's like an interesting concept, right? People are sleeping above and the animals are below, right? So a manger is nearby at any time, right? So it would have been natural for them to lay him in a manger in this way. But that means even more uncomfortable than a stable, right? They don't even have the privacy of their own stable, right? They're in somebody's house who particularly or potentially, excuse me, they, they don't actually know. And Luke says, there is no guest room, right? That's the detail Luke gives us. There is no, and generally we say, well, there, there was no room for them in the inn, right? But that potentially means there, there was no, you know, guest room in the house that they were staying in. No extra room. Like, and you've experienced this. So likely they are staying in the main living area of somebody's house. And if you've ever done that. You know what it's like, right? You're sleeping on the fold-out couch in somebody's living room. It's very nice. They don't have a guest room, but it's very kind of them to let you stay. But here's the thing. When one person in the house wakes up, you're up, right? Because they're coming, right? They're going to go to the kitchen. Maybe the kitchen in this culture is in the living room. It's all just one big area, right? You're up. And in this particular case, your newborn baby is probably up too, right? It's, it's like a, not a, a very comfortable idea 
Like for those of you who've recently had babies, we've got plenty of people who've had babies in the last couple of years. I want you to imagine that you had your newborn baby in somebody's living room and you stayed there for an extended amount of time, right? And it gets worse. Because if you really soak in like the full effect of the nativity scene, at some point, Luke says, shepherds who you don't know will come because they've heard that Jesus has been born. They want to come and see him, right? So unexpected strangers will show up at the door. Months, more like years later, Jesus is a toddler and these magi will come with their gifts. Again, you don't know these people. But they will come unexpectedly to see you. It's like, this is, this is strange. And then further along the line, somewhere along the way, some kid with a, a, a snare drum shows up. And it's like, a, I don't know how the, the, the little drummer boy ended up in there. He's not in Matthew or Luke, right? But even if you remove the little drummer boy from the scene, the Magi make it sufficiently uncomfortable. And I don't know that we, we take that seriously. The word for, for Magi in Greek, it, it's obviously where we get our word magic, magician. Uh, They weren't magicians, uh, we don't think. It can mean a wide variety of things in Greek, but just about everything it means would have been problematic for people like Mary or Joseph, Jewish people. They would not have been comfortable with any of it. Neither would Christian people who were reading or hearing this story in the earliest days of the church. I don't know if you realize this, but most of the early church fathers, most early church pastors were uncomfortable with the Magi. They had a negative view of the Magi. They saw them as people who were problematic, and yet they were converted. That was the way they kind of understood it. We tend to view them very positively, but in the early church, in Jewish culture, they would have been viewed as astrologers. They were like fortune tellers. They watched the movement of the stars, and they try from the movement of the stars to determine, to predict what is going to happen in this world with humans based upon the movement of the stars. They're telling fortunes. They're those kinds of people. And it's the sort of thing in Israel that was seen as evil. It was the kind of thing that they had been redeemed from, that God had saved them from and given them a different way, right? And so here come these foreign people with that kind of perspective. So imagine, obviously you're not Jewish, but imagine as an Orthodox Christian person adhering to the historical tenets of the Christian faith, and you've just had a baby, and someone comes knocking at your hospital door. They're Wiccans. You know, they dabble in witchcraft. But they have gifts, handmade trinkets, and they want to give them to your child, and you're thinking, this is a little suspicious. Oh, well, it's this cooperative program that they do at the hospital. I don't care what it is, man. This is weird. Like, I don't know if I want my kid playing with those toys. This is strange, right? Those guys show up at your house. Imagine this. And remember, Mary, Joseph, they're staying in a house full of people just like them, right? A whole bunch of people who would have felt the same way about it, right? And in this ancient culture, we're not talking like just a nuclear family, mom, dad, and two kids. We're talking about mom, dad, a bunch of kids maybe, maybe granddad's there, grandma's there. Like a lot of people are living in these houses. They're all connected, right? Can you imagine what granddad's going to say? Is it not going to be racist and offensive? Like, what do you think? Like, how are you going to to try to keep granddad from saying what he actually thinks about these magi, right? That's going to happen. It's an uncomfortable moment. Like, how are they supposed to receive them? The magi were fringe figures in Jewish society. They represent everything other than us, 
There's us and there's them, and they are very thoroughly them, right? That's who they are. They are religiously other. They, they don't worship the same God as us. They are morally and ethically other. They have built their life around something we view as evil. They are in every way other. They're ethnically other. Their language, their customs, their skin color, everything about them is different from us is the way they would have been viewed. And those people show up at the door of Herod in Jerusalem. It's not just uncomfortable in Bethlehem, it's uncomfortable in Jerusalem. And they say, the king of the Jews has been born. Like from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, there's this clear picture of the nations coming to worship of the Gentiles being drawn into the kingdom of God. There's this picture that those we might otherwise have excluded from the kingdom of God, God has decided to bring near. God has decided to welcome them. It's not just in Matthew 28 where we see Jesus pushing his disciples toward the nations. Matthew, from the very beginning, is trying to help you see the nations, these people that you might have excluded. And they are among the first to recognize Jesus as king. It's their epiphany that the church has historically celebrated. It's their eyes being opened up that we remember over and over again. It's they who first saw Jesus for who he really was, right? Those kinds of people. We have to consider that. But why would Matthew include this little detail? Like, it's a nice story, and it could have been shared. There are a whole lot of stories. John says that in his gospel. There's a lot of things I could have told you, but I've just told these things. Why does Matthew think he needs to include this one? Like, why couldn't a prophet show up at Herod's door and say, the king of the Jews has been born? That would have been more fitting for Jewish people, right? One of their prophets comes and tells them. A priest, in a moment of prayer, in a moment of worship, you know, maybe like a Simeon or an Anna kind of figure. That would have made much more sense. This is kind of an embarrassing story. It's a little unflattering that those people would tell us the king of the Jews has been born, that Jesus, the Messiah, has been born. Why would Matthew include it? And we have to take seriously. He has no reason to include it unless it's just true. And very often when we hear this story, people will, will talk about that. It's like, do we really take this seriously? Is it just some, like, neat story that, that everybody kind of came up with to legitimize Jesus, to give Jesus some credibility? See, look, even people from other nations recognized his reign as king. Is that what it was? No, if they were going to do that, they probably would have come up with something a bit more flattering. It's a strange story, and we're left to consider that it, it must be true. As unlikely as it seems, right? Matthew wants you to see from the beginning, God was pleased to make himself known in the most unlikely of ways, in the most unlikely of places, to the most unlikely of people. This is how it's always been. And as we've been thinking about it over the last year, we began this conversation, you know, almost a year ago, as we got to the end of January, we've been thinking like, sitting in epiphany in this scene and what's happening here might be the, the best way that we can begin a year together. It might be something that we've missed for a long time. Because this is a season for most Americans that is maybe more introspective, more reflective than any other, right? We're all thinking about, you know, how to better ourselves, how to grow. How can we make this year better than, than last year? That's the mindset that so many people are in the beginning of a year. 
An epiphany is an invitation to, to something else, right? To learn to celebrate the gift of, of God incarnate, the reality of God having come to us. To be filled with that same joy that the Magi experience as they see this star and they begin to, to travel toward Bethlehem. Epiphany is an invitation to contemplate more than anything the ways that we can share that same joy with the least, with the lost, with the other in our world. It's an opportunity to reevaluate our lives just like our culture already does, but in a completely different way than our culture goes about it. There's something about it that I think is, is really powerful. But let, let's double back, okay? Let's leave Bethlehem for a minute, go back to Jerusalem. Because what happens in Jerusalem, I think, gets lost in all of the excitement. Everybody knows what happens in Bethlehem, but what's lost is what's happening with Herod in Jerusalem. The word used to describe Herod is that when he heard the news, he was troubled. He was disturbed. He's shaken up. He's bothered by what he's hearing. He doesn't like what he's hearing. And that makes sense to us, right? Because somebody's told him that the king of the Jews has been born. Normally, his title is king of the Jews. He's the only other person who's called king of the Jews. There is no other king other than him at the time. Not in Judea. He doesn't even rule in Judea, really. He's not allowed to. But he's the only king in what we would consider Israel. There's a problem with that, though, because he's not actually Jewish. The guy's not legitimate. Um, he had a mother who was an Arab. He had a father who was an Edomian, meaning he's from Edom. If you remember, that's the descendants of Esau, right? So not Jacob, not Israel. I mean, even if we were being, like, incredibly generous, Herod is, like, maybe one quarter Jewish. Maybe. That's being overly generous. They would not have even considered him in that sort of way. He's not a worshiper of Yahweh. He doesn't know the law. He doesn't live according to their customs. He has been put in place by Caesar. Nobody in Judea had anything to do with this man being called a king. Nobody in Israel had anything to do with this man being put in power, and yet he, he now has power. So his power is on pretty shaky ground, right? So he's a a severely insecure man. He's all the time having to, to make sure everybody knows. He is still powerful, though. Now here come these foreigners claiming there's a new king of the Jews. He takes offense. He's uncomfortable. So he, he tells the Magi, I want you to go and, and find this baby. And I want you to return to Jerusalem with the information so that I can go and worship him too, right? We all know the story, and if we'd read to the end of the chapter, you know what, what his, his terrible intentions are. He's capable of really terrible things. He does this throughout his career as a leader in the Roman world. He's a terrible person. We know what he's capable of. He rejects the idea of any other king in Judea. He's not comfortable with it. He's bothered by it, right? And you can see it in the way Matthew tells the story. If you notice, the Magi come and they say, the king of the Jews has been born. They are comfortable with using that title. Herod is not. The way Matthew tells the story, because Herod doesn't know anything about the law or about scripture, he doesn't know where this king is supposed to be born, but he's aware vaguely of the notion of a Messiah. And so he goes and he says to the religious authorities, I need you to tell me where 
the Messiah is going to be born. And that's kind of intentional, it seems like. He doesn't say, I need you to tell me where the king of the Jews that we're waiting on is going to be born. No, 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 that would be to threaten his position of power. It's like Herod knows he's not the Messiah. He gets that. He's not this spiritual leader who's going to lead the people of Israel out from under oppression and into this kingdom that God is going to establish. He's not a spiritual figure. He's a Roman political figure, but he is a king, and there will be no other king. That's the way Herod sees it, even if that means he has to kill not just Jesus, but every other little baby boy in Bethlehem. This is the way he functions, right? Herod's response to the news is utter and complete rejection. And you think, like, yeah, Herod's about as bad as it gets. There is no worse response to know that this king has been born, to know that Messiah has come, and to utterly and completely reject him, to even be willing to murder him so that you can contain this or remain in power. And in our minds, that's the way we, we tend to see it. That's the worst thing you could do, rejection. And what gets lost is this other part of the story. You see his rejection, but you also see indifference. There's indifference at the heart of these, these other people. Herod wants to get rid of Jesus, so he goes to the religious authorities, the priests, the teachers, the scribes. Remember the people that Jesus spends so much time in conversation with, who he offends so regularly. And the religious authorities, they know what neither... The Magi, nor Herod himself knows. Like, they know the answer to these questions. They know where exactly the Messiah is to be born, right? And I think Matthew's being real intentional. It's interesting. The Magi have made it all the way to Jerusalem on just their knowledge of the stars, okay? Yet they cannot get all the way to Bethlehem. Their wisdom, the stars, it, it cannot get you to Bethlehem. It cannot get you to Jesus. Only the scriptures can. Matthew wants you to see that. These stories, these words that have been written, inspired by God, written down for generations, that's the only thing ultimately that can get you to Jesus. That's what brings them to Jesus, right? It doesn't matter how accomplished they are in the study of the stars. It doesn't matter how elite a person Herod is, the position of power he's been put in, his power and his, his high birth, it means nothing. It cannot get them to Jesus, ultimately. They have to humble themselves and go to someone else and say, where is this king supposed to be born? And we have to take that seriously, right? Matthew has this high view of the scriptures. And in particular for him, the scriptures are the Old Testament. He has this high view of Scripture. That is the means by which you are going to know Jesus more intimately. You're going to search in all of these other sorts of ways, but the Scriptures have to be central to the way you do this. Even though that's true, the very people who know the Scriptures, the authorities, the ones who studied it, the way Matthew tells the story, they tell the Magi where the Messiah is to be born, but Matthew doesn't say anything about them going to Bethlehem. The only people who go to Bethlehem after that moment are the Magi. Now consider that. Just think about this. The Magi have just told the people who've been waiting on the Messiah to come for hundreds of years. This is the, the one they've been longing for, who's going to redeem them. The Messiah is five and a half miles up the road. They make that journey frequently. 
and they go nowhere. They say, eh. Who wants to go to Jerusalem? Not me. Indifference. Like, who, who wants to bother with, with, with worship? I never get to sleep, right? Help me out. Like, there are so many better things I could be doing on a day like today than this. God, I could be productive. I need rest, right? Like, all of these different things. Like, there are in our lives so many moments of indifference, and I don't know that we take it seriously. And here's a picture of indifference. They know the truth. They are open to it, but they're, they're mostly just indifferent. I, I don't, I don't want to bother with this. And indifference ultimately leaves us in the same place as rejection. Whether you are indifferent to Jesus or you reject him outright, you will find yourself in the same place, outside of Bethlehem, outside of this joy the Magi are experiencing, and outside of the kingdom. And we miss that. Like, here are people who know the truth, and they're just indifferent to it. And it's so, it's so easy to become indifferent and to miss the wonder and the joy, right? An epiphany invites us out of our indifference. It invites us into wonder and to joy in the beginning of the year, and not just into working really hard. It invites us to seek God while he may be found, to search for him in the places that we've long abandoned and forgotten and stopped searching for him in, the places we don't expect to see him in. It invites us into those kinds of places among people that, that we might not normally be with. This is where God chooses to make himself known. It's a different kind of approach, right? There's a whole lot of hope. There's all this anticipation that's tied up in epiphany. And it's a lot like New Year's in that way. It fits the beginning of the year, even though they're two completely different things. We look forward to a new year because, like, a new year offers us so much possibility, right? There's all these opportunities that come with a new year, right? What I could not do last year, I may be able to do this year. I can grow, I can become whatever it is I'm longing to be, whatever it is I think I should be and I should have been for a long time. Like, here's another opportunity, right? And so people lay out resolutions. We create these very often really good things. And we say, this is what I'm going to pursue. In the coming year, this is what I want. But we have to admit, our resolutions, most if not all of them, they're, they're pretty self-centered. And I, some of you are thinking, well, obviously my resolutions are self-centered. I cannot make resolutions for other people, right? I get it. If I could make resolutions for other people, the world would be a better place because <laughs> they are the problem, not myself, obviously. That's not what I mean, right? Here's what I'm getting at. Not just that... They're selfish and self-centered in that way. Our goals and our resolutions are not just driven by us. They're not just motivated by me, driven by me, and require my action. They're not just driven by us. They are driven for us, ultimately. It's about what I want. It's about what I need consistently. It's hard for us to resolve to do much that isn't self-centered in some way, right? You can generally trace it back. There's some level of self-interest in these things. And that's not all bad. 
So many of our goals, though, are about self-improvement, about the bettering of myself, becoming a better version of myself, leveling up in this life, whether that's on a spiritual level or just, you know, an ordinary, everyday kind of level in my career, whatever it might be. And don't misunderstand me. It goes without saying, you should take care of yourself. And it's good to reevaluate regularly. Are you actually taking care of yourself? One of the most Christian things you could do in any given moment very often is to take care of yourself. And there are a whole lot of people in the church that are not taking care of themselves and don't take that seriously. You should take care of yourself, right? Absolutely. But what that looks like, I think sometimes, is where we get it wrong. Because very often, like, again, let's just name, like, these cliche things that are very good that generally we all want to do in a new year. I'm going to eat healthier. I'm going to go to the gym, right? Why do I want to do these things? Will I actually be healthier if I eat healthier? Theoretically, yes. If I go to the gym, yes. But why do I want to do these things? At some level, I have to be real. If I eat better and I go to the gym, I'll look more like I think I should look. And if I look better in my own mind, other people will see also that I look better. It's hard not to trace this back at some level to, to me needing to be something better, to look better, to appear away in someone's eye. This is the, the nature of how it goes, right? I want to read more books every year of my life, guys. Every single year of my life, I want to read more books. And in the beginning of a year, I will read more books. I absolutely will. I don't make it like a goal or a resolution. It's just a thing. Like I, I don't know a time in the year when I don't want that. I always want to be reading more. But at some level, there are these moments where I go, should I read this book or this book? Well, this book, I genuinely need to read. This book is really more so I'm hoping that maybe in a conversation it will come up and I will appear very intelligent. This one's written by one of those guys that, that not everybody else can understand. And they go, oh, you've read that one, right? right? Like, that's going to happen. We all feel that at some level, right? This thing that happens to us. But the problem with these self-centered, self-oriented resolutions is that that means not just that I'm selfish. Take it a step further. The problem with self-centered resolutions is that I'm placing all of my hope for a coming year in my own work and my own effort. And what that means is if all of my hope is tied to my own efforts and accomplishments in the year that's ahead of me, if that's true, then statistically, when what generally happens and I fail to attain whatever goal, to live up to whatever resolution, when I fail at that particular thing, my hope fails. When I fail at that thing, I begin to sink into despair at some level. I become more and more cynical year after year that I'm capable of any of these things, right? And then eventually we just say, well, I won't make resolutions at all. It doesn't matter. I won't ever at any point, whether it's this year or any other time, I won't try, right? We become indifferent. Life is what it is. Beyond that, if I should actually manage to accomplish these things, Maybe all of them, maybe just some of them. If I accomplish this goal, there's this potential, this possibility that as I grind, as I work to improve myself and to grow inevitably along the way in my desire for efficiency, right, to mark off every item on this list, I will inevitably neglect people around me. 
They become invisible. I get tunnel vision. It happens. Some of the most efficient, some of the most effective people in our world that we celebrate for having accomplished so much are terrible people on an individual personal level. But we recognize that. There's a possibility that in my effort to become a better person, I can neglect so many people, whether that's my family or beyond. But if I build my year instead around this thing that God has done, if it begins an epiphany, this gift that God has given us, right? If it begins there and that joy, if I begin the year with the expectation of God's continuing faithfulness, if I begin the year seeing all that he's done, right? Rather than orienting my life around what I may or may not do over the next 365, right? I orient my life around his faithfulness. That means that when I inevitably fail, I see God at work in my failure. And instead of putting down whatever resolution, whatever good thing I've set my hands to, I pick it right back up because I know God was at work even in my failure. It allows me to see these endeavors, these things in a different sort of way. I don't need to wait for another year to try this. I need to pick it up and I need to continue to press into this thing that God's called me into. There's a different sort of way of approaching it. Epiphany allows me to build my year around something else. A hope that's not firmly rooted in just my own effort. It's an opportunity to build my life, to, to be drawn toward the other around me. Rather than just around myself, my own desires, my own ideas of what an ideal life could look like. Uh, I ran into this, this quote from Middlemarch. I don't know if you guys have ever read Middlemarch by George Eliot. And um, I meant to get it on the screen. Sorry, I'll try to read it slowly for you. Here's what he says. I think it offers us a lot in a new year and as we celebrate Epiphany. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. Doesn't sound like our resolutions, generally. And the fact that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who have lived faithfully a hidden life and who rest in unvisited tombs. We have these big, audacious dreams. And I love this idea that the world has been changed very often by unhistoric acts. The church has been made better by unhistoric acts. That so much good that has been done in this world is owed to those who very often live faithfully a hidden life and who now rest in unvisited tombs. Like for years, we've, we've begun our year with the, the 21 days of prayer. Like most of you, if you've been in Mosaic very long at all, you're very familiar with it. You know we've done this for a long time. During that time, people spend time praying. Like we, we have corporate gatherings for prayer. We do special things. Uh, and this year, we'll, we'll continue some of that. We're going to be doing uh, some lunches like we did last year. We're really looking forward to that, trying to emphasize this idea of feasting that you see in Epiphany. Very often, though, um, we invite people into these rhythms of prayer, 
reading scripture, fasting, abstaining from certain things over the course of the month, and it is a great way to begin the year, a way of reevaluating, of considering what it is God has in the year ahead of us, right? And we're essentially doing the same thing. We just want to approach it completely different. We want to use epiphany as a way of framing how we do this. The idea is, we were talking about this this Thursday morning with a group of guys, like, we're not saying you, you can't because we're not doing this. Don't pray and don't study and don't fast. That would be terrible because that's not what we're doing. That's not what we're doing this year. No, absolutely. Pray, study, fast, whatever it might be. But endeavor to do it in this different sort of way, right? Like what if we considered as we were thinking about resolutions and what we want for the year ahead of, ahead of us, like what if we considered and took seriously, what does it mean for me to faithfully live a hidden life? Not to only make resolutions that others will see and celebrate, that I will be able to celebrate in front of others, that I will be able to acknowledge and, and be excited about. What about just the, the hidden things? Like, do we ever resolve to do the hidden things? Like, what if we build our goals and our aspirations less around a desire to improve self or to be seen a particular way that we want to be seen, and instead we embrace this life of very often unhistoric acts? hidden obedience as disciples of Jesus. It doesn't mean we never do anything visible. No, not at all. It doesn't mean we never endeavor to do something great. Just consider that what doing something great looks like very often might be hidden and no one may ever know about it. What if you accomplish said resolution and no one ever realizes it? It would still be good. What if you gave yourself to something for a lifetime and nobody ever celebrated you for it? Like imagine the power, the freedom that comes from a life of a person who has embraced that no one will ever visit my grave. It frees you. I don't need this legacy that people are always trying to sell me that I need. I want to learn what it is to live faithfully, very often a hidden life. Because it's there that all of these other things will begin to, to take root. Everything else grows from that. These hidden, unhistoric acts that we do day after day. There's something beautiful about that. Can we give ourselves to it? Imagine if, if the greatest thing you ever do is simply to worship and to bear witness to the birth of this king. Like that's the magi. One of the things that I think is, is really helpful about the Magi and then the way the story is told is we don't know their names. The church <laughs> has come up with names for each of them. You can look them up. I can't remember. I think one of them, Balthazar or something like that. We come up with these names to try to humanize these people and make more sense of them. But I think it's in intentional that we don't know their names. It's like the Magi are, are people whose tombs have never been visited. Nobody ever knows that they were the first to recognize who Jesus was. That they were the, the ones who essentially began this tremendous missional movement that now defines the church. Before Jesus told his disciples to go forth to the nations, they had done it, right? And yet they rest in unvisited tombs. A seemingly unhistoric act that they've done. It just didn't seem like it would matter. We don't know their names, and it doesn't matter because all they lived for from that point on, seemingly, was to make known this king. And as we come to the table and the band comes and, like, we consider these things, like, 
I'm not saying you shouldn't make resolutions. I'm saying you should approach them differently. I'm not saying we shouldn't reevaluate our lives. I'm saying the way that we evaluate our lives in a season like this ought to look a bit differently. We ought to approach it. We ought to, to ask, what does that look like? For me, not just to do the things that will be pleasing to everybody else, that would make me feel better about myself, but to do those, those hidden, seemingly unimportant things. Like, what would it look like for me to search for God in these places where I don't expect to find him any longer? To see him at work in those kinds of things. To do those kinds of things. What does that look like? How do I pursue that? As we come to the table, there's this opportunity to kind of renew that, to reevaluate things, to consider what it looks like. The life of a disciple proclaiming the birth of this king. And sometimes uncelebrated, unhistoric, unnoticed ways that may ultimately have a far greater effect than if we did it in this much more visible and grand way. Consider it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for it's just the gift of this, this story. We thank you for that scene when the Magi show up at the house. As awkward and uncomfortable as it was, the way you were already breaking down the dividing wall of hostility that divides us from one another. And we pray, God, in, in the moments ahead of us, you would show us how we as the church can endeavor to do that continually. Not just to improve ourselves as individuals, but to seek the good of those around us through the way we're living our lives in sometimes very hidden and quiet and unnoticeable ways. That we would begin to cultivate that kind of life, that from that could grow something deeply, powerfully effective. That begin to be at work in us as, as we step into, uh, yeah, a different kind of season in our new year. And mold us into the image of your son. We pray in Jesus' name.